number 12, Hebrews chapter number 12. And uh, as you're turning, let me give you just a couple things. Don't forget about growth groups that start tonight, our next cycle of growth groups. And uh, it has, can I just kind of just give us where we all are real quick, just kind of be very transparent this morning. Uh, It has been a wonky day. Okay, uh, stuff technology-wise not going well this morning, uh, and just all kinds of just little hiccups. Uh, let me just remind you, we're not here for any of that. Just being honest, we've got people out of town traveling today. Uh, we're not coming for people. Uh, we're coming for an audience of one today. Uh, so I want to just kind of recenter the focus this morning on the person that we're singing about today. Uh, I don't know if you paid attention. Sometimes it's so easy to kind of get locked into just that motion of we're singing the same old songs again and again and again. Um, but Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. And so we think about where we are today. You know, we can talk about technology and you know, so-and-so's not here today. And uh, there's some empty seats, whatever. We're not coming for them. We're not coming for the music. And we're coming for him. Him. This morning. Uh, so let's recenter our focus today on Him. And it's easy for all of us to say, well, you know, that didn't work out or that didn't go whatever. Uh, that didn't happen the way that I thought it was going to. Blah. It doesn't matter. Uh, we're here for Him. So don't allow things to sidetrack why we're here. Why we're here. We're here for the Lord this morning. Uh, we're here for Him. Uh, so with that being said, take your Bible, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we are going to participate this morning in communion and uh, the Lord's table. We'll talk about that in just a few moments uh, and why. But I want to kind of set the stage for that. And uh, that's why a little bit of the comments this morning, uh, it's easy for us, uh, me, uh, me, I say me, me, it's just transparent this morning, uh, easy for me uh, to get in my head. And uh, easy for me to get in the flesh before I get to this point of the service and say, you know, I, I wanted to change that. And uh, I, I, we, we walk around with our order of service and a pen every single week and make notes of things we saw that we can, man, we need to get better at this or we need to change this or this light bulb's out or, you know, whatever. And uh, that can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Uh, so because at the end of the day, if Jesus is not meeting with us this morning, it doesn't matter what it says on the order of service. Doesn't matter. Uh, we want His presence. We need His presence uh, today. Uh, so we're going to talk this morning about uh, communion. Communion is a very special event, only one of two ordinances given to the local church. And we're here to observe that this morning. Uh, the fact that Jesus died for us. But it's not just as simple as a wafer and some grape juice today. It's more than that. There's a significant meaning to what we're doing today. And I want to see from Hebrews chapter 12 a unique passage, but it points back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is our kind of our basis for communion and why we celebrate the Lord's table. But Hebrews chapter 12 gives us an interesting insight to why. Why we're recognizing the Lord's table. Let's look Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, you can follow along on the screen. The verses will be up there for you to follow along. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Wherefore, because of all that has just been shared in Hebrews chapter 11, we'll get there in just a minute, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's verse 3. For consider him. There he is. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest she be wearied and faint in your mind. Consider him. Consider him. That's why we come every single Sunday. That's why we do what we do. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we praise. That's why we invite. That's why we share the gospel. It is all to consider him. We are considering him in everything we do. So this morning, I want to ask very simply, are you considering him? Are you considering him? As we come before the Lord's table this morning, have we considered him? Let's pray this morning and then we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the reminders that we have in your word to recenter our focus on you. Uh, Lord, it's easy for us to get sidetracked. Uh, Lord, there's so much going on. We're all busy in our day-to-day lives. Uh, Lord, we all have things going on. Uh, Lord, we all have things that we're thinking about this morning, where we're going to eat lunch and uh, what groups gonna, I'm go, am I going to be in tonight and uh, that meeting that I've got this week and, uh, Lord, my schedule and all those different things. And it's easy for us to get sidetracked and overlook why we came this morning. Lord, it's easy for us to get distracted. But, Lord, help us to dial in for these next few minutes and consider you and consider why you went to the cross. Consider what your purpose was and help us to reflect and see how that applies to us today. Lord, I ask that you please speak to my heart. Please cleanse me of anything unconfessed in my heart and life. Help me to be clean as I preach your word this morning, as I share these thoughts from your word. Help them to be truthful thoughts in the ears of the listener. Lord, please be with those who are watching online this morning and help them to see something that applies to their life today. Lord, I ask that you please be with those who are not here today, those who are traveling, those who are sick, those who would love to be here and cannot be for whatever the reason. Lord, please be with them. And Lord, help those who are struggling, who are hurting, to hold on just a little bit longer, knowing that you are working even when we can't see it. Lord, if there's one here today that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, please allow today to be their day of salvation. Lord, please speak to them. Lord, I ask that you please Help us to apply your truth to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down number one, the contrast. The contrast. Uh, When we get to Hebrews chapter 12, we've just gone through a passage of Scripture that dealt with great faith. Great faith on display. And uh, people who had great faith. But when we look at the list, I want us to remember we don't see great people on the list. We see great faith on the list. Some of the people who are mentioned in this list, we wouldn't let babysit our kids. Some of these people who have just been mentioned in this list, we would not want to be identified with them publicly. But yet they exhibited great faith that was noteworthy. And so their names were mentioned. So when we get to chapter 12, we have to remember the context of what we've just experienced in chapter 11. All of this faith on display, and then we see two thoughts about verses 1 and 2. We see, number one, those challenging us. 
those challenging us. Look at verse number one. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. I've heard people suggest and messages in the past and teaching that uh, somehow there is a great banister in heaven and uh, it's all of the saints who have gone before us are peering over, looking over at our lives and cheering us on from heaven's grandstand. You can do it. But I don't know that that's what the writer is intending here. I'm wondering if we see the list of people who have faced great hardship in their lives. And as you go through this list in Hebrews chapter 11, all kinds of people who have suffered and who have gone through different examples that have led them to display great faith in their lives. And when we get to chapter 12, the intention of the writer is to motivate someone by the example of others who suffered yet had great faith. We're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. You see, witnesses doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's looking. A witness can be someone who has a testimony to share. All of these people live through hardship and say, I am a witness to the fact that God was still faithful and he was trustworthy through all of my hardships. I don't necessarily know that heaven has a grandstand and people are peering over and we could make that argument, but I think the principle we see here is we're to look back and see all of these people who suffered and yet had great faith. All of these people who went through horrible difficulties, the end of chapter 11, uh, horrible atrocities, stones, sawn asunder, fed to lions, all of these things, yet they had faith. And we are challenged that we are to have that same kind of faith. You say, well, Pastor, uh, does that mean that when I walk out of my car, there's going to be lions in the parking lot? I sure hope not, because <laughs> my car is out there too. Uh, I hope not. It'll be a long afternoon at church, if so. Uh, many phone calls made. But how encouraging is it for us to know that there are others who have gone before us who have struggled and yet trusted God? who have gone through some of the same things that we have and have come alongside us and said, you know what, you can hold on a little bit longer. You can make it. You can do it. One of the worst things that you can say to someone who's struggling is, I know exactly how you feel. Because let's be honest, you don't. Your circumstance is totally different than their circumstance. Your trial of faith is different than theirs. But you can walk up. And share your experience and say, you know what? God was faithful to me and I know he will be for you. God was trustworthy for me and I know he's going to be the same for you. And maybe, just maybe, God allowed you to experience that hardship so that you can encourage someone else. Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. So this morning, when was the last time that you rallied around someone for the purpose of encouraging them to hold on a little bit longer? When's the last time you came along someone and said, hey, God is still good. God is still going to be faithful. God is still going to be there for you. When's the last time you did that? And see, we need each other. The Christian life was never meant to be lived solo. We need one another. That's why it's so important to come to church. 
That's why it's so important to be here. And I'm thankful for the use of technology and the fact that we can stay connected online and people can peer in and watch services. But that is not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is for us to assemble, to be together. Why? So that we can all encourage one another. I can't tell you the last time that I grabbed my tablet and said, I just want to encourage you this morning. You can't do that and experience encouragement through a device. But you can experience encouragement when you come into the body of believers and see other people and say, man, I know that they're, they're hurting, but yet they still have a song. They can still sing that new song that we talked about last Sunday. They can still lean into the promises of God's word. They can still be faithful because God is faithful. See, we are to see those who are challenging us. But then not only that, we see number two, there is one who is completing us. It says, verse number two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Not just those who are motivating us, challenging us, but we have one above us who's completing us. Who's trying to complete in us the work that began at the moment of our salvation. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he finished God's plan of redemption for mankind. Because we have a problem that we can't fix, but Jesus can. We have a problem. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't do some good deed to get there. We can't get baptized or uh, be a member of a church to be able to get to go to heaven. Our goodness is not good enough. We had to have him pay the ultimate sacrifice. And he did that on the cross. Jesus said in John 14, verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No one will get to heaven apart from Jesus. No one will get there. He is the only way. A.W. Tozer said, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's his work on the cross and in the empty tomb that saves us. He was here when it started in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. That means that he was already there. He was already pre-existing before the beginning. And he will be the one who carries us all throughout eternity. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. He said, I am Alpha, beginning, and Omega, the ending. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And when we think about our lives today, sinful man, the only way that we get to experience eternity with the one who is eternal is to be in Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Jesus finished His task. He fixed His eyes on the goal, our redemption. He finished. He completed it. He is the finisher of our faith. But a big question today, are you in Him this morning? Are you in Christ See, you don't even have a seat at the Lord's table when we talk about communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. You don't even have a seat at the table until you've crossed off the very first point. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't even have a seat. You don't even belong at His table until you have received Christ as your personal Savior. You don't have that settled until He is your Savior. 
So we see the contrast. Great faith on display, but Jesus is the finisher of our faith. The contrast, but then number two, we see the consideration. We are to consider something. When we think about the contrast and the one who finished, the one we consider is him. It's not that we sit back and say, man, I'm going to consider Abel and Abraham and Moses and all of these things. The Bible tells us that we are to consider Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The emphasis is not on all of the people. The emphasis is on Christ. The emphasis is on Him. And see, the cross, we look at the fact that He was, number one, shamed. He was shamed. It says in verse number two, he, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. See, the cross wasn't something that they looked forward to. Yay, I get to die on the cross. That was not said. The, the cross, crucifixion, was something invented by the Romans as a method of death to inflict as much pain as the human body could endure. Jesus Christ hung for six hours on the cross. In the worst way imaginable, suffering shame for us. Why? Why? Was it just because it was the cool thing to do? Was it the right thing to do? No. He did that because he loves us. He did that because he loves us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He had no sin of his own, yet he took on our sin. He took our punishment, our suffering, so that we wouldn't have to experience. That's why he said about his own life in John chapter 10 and verse number 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. See, Jesus didn't have sin in himself. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because of death, because of sin, death is passed upon all men. And because Jesus had not sinned, he did not have to die. He did not have to die for his own sin because he didn't have sin. The wages of sin is death. Because Jesus was not a sinner, he did not have to die. But yet when we think about the fact that he died anyway, means that there was a purpose to his death. He died for something. He died for a cause. But because of his love for us, the plan of the Father, he willingly laid down his life and endured a shameful death on our behalf. You know, it just shows how far God is willing to go because of love. He proved Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, or excuse me, yes, 5 verse 8. He proved, God commendeth his love. He proved his love for us. Showed, displayed that. See, to be called a Christian at this time period was shameful because of who they were connected to. And it might be the same today. You might be the only Christian at your workplace. You might be the only one in your family who names the name of Jesus Christ. And it may still be shameful But just know that he already endured shame on your behalf. He endured shame. When Paul wrote to the church of Corinth about their conduct in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he rebuked them for their behavior when it came to communion because they were not adequately prepared 
for coming before his presence at the Lord's table. And I wonder how many times we say, all right, we're going to have communion, we're going to have the Lord's table, and it's just another event on our calendar. It's just another thing that we do. It's just another one of those things that we go through the motions. Yeah, I'm saved, Pastor, so I'm going to take communion. But we've done nothing to prepare our hearts for the practice of communion. Let me ask you this morning, are you prepared to partake this morning? Are you prepared spiritually for partaking? What does it mean? What does it represent? And number two, we see not only did he endure shame, number two, he suffered. He endured in verse number two, but in verse number three, it says it again. For consider him that endured. Fast forward to today. When it comes to living for him, we somehow expect our lives to be easy because Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered, uh, he endured, uh, he did all of that so that I could have a cushy, easy life. If that's what you believe, that's not in the Bible. That's not what it says in the Bible. Uh, rather, to the contrary, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, we would stop right there and say, Yeah, eternal glory, woo, woo. But the verse doesn't stop. By Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while. Oh, I don't like that part of the verse. I'm going to take a pen and scratch that one out. It doesn't make it any less true. After that ye have suffered a while. Make you perfect, complete, establish, strengthen, settle you. It is his objective for our lives for us to suffer. We are going, if any man will live godly in Christ Jesus, he shall suffer persecution. Uh, Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Who's the righteous, church? Those who are saved. Those who have received Christ as their personal Savior. The righteous. You're a part of a group this morning. If that is your testimony, you're a part of the righteous. But there's a promise here in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We are going to experience hardship. It's just the truth. I love what Alistair Begg said. Despite the obvious emphasis of Scripture in regard to suffering, we are bombarded by suggestions that the successful Christian living takes place in the realm of constant victory, health, wholeness, and financial prosperity. In response to this, we are not to pretend that suffering doesn't exist or that it might be instantly cured. Such notions are the product of empty heads and closed Bibles. Empty heads and closed Bibles. You ever heard somebody say, either in your own life or maybe someone on television, hey, you know what, if you would just give more, you'd have less problems. If you would just trust more, you'd have less problems. If you would just walk by faith more, you'd have less problems. That's not what the Bible says. The most perfect, complete human being who has ever walked this face of the earth was perfect and pure and suffered like none of us can possibly imagine. So it's not about being perfect that is the answer. 
we are going, going to suffer. And let me ask you this question very simply. If Jesus suffered for us, why would we think it unfair if we suffer for him? If Jesus suffered for us, why would we think, oh, pastor, it's not fair. I'm going through all these problems. Why is it unfair? Because if our example of our faith suffered, why would we think that we get an easy life? Let me just remind us what we all already know. The world does not like Jesus. The world doesn't like Jesus. They never have. 2,000 years, they never have. So why then would we reason in our minds that because we're connected to Jesus, that the world will love us? It doesn't work that way. If you name the name of Christ, you are automatically, by default, the enemy of the world. Don't expect an easy life. If you go around telling people you're connected to Jesus. Now, we might say, well, that just means that I'm not going to tell anybody. Well, guess what? You're going to have more problems. Because it is not possible for you to be two things at one time. You have to choose. So his body was broken. All of the things that he suffered for, his blood was shed. And it happened for us. And every time we come to this time of the service, when we partake in the Lord's table, it is to remind us of the price he was willing to pay for our sin. Our sin. He suffered. He endured. He was shamed. But then number three, he is seated. Look at verse number two again. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He died. He rose. He ascended. He is seated on his throne in heaven. The work of the Old Testament priest was never done. If you do a study of the tabernacle, you will not find a piece of furniture where you were to sit on it because it was a picture that the priest's work was never completed. Contrast that to our life today in the Christian life. Our work is not completed. Our work is not done. Uh, if you were to run, I was in Boston a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago now for the Boston Marathon. I wasn't participating, uh, just in case anybody's wondering. Uh, but just happened to be there that day. But when we think about the Boston Marathon, as you're out on the streets and you're watching those people running, there is not anything in their mind that tells them, man, where is the next chair where I can sit down in the middle of the track? There's not anything on their mind. Their goal is very simple. To come around that last turn and see the finish line a half a mile away and get there. That's their goal. It is not, where am I going to find a seat and take a break? The goal is to finish. And for our life today, our goal is not to say, where can I take a break? Where can I find a seat? Our goal is to run our race. See, we're told to run that race in verse number 1, let us run with patience. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. Your goal and objective in this life is to finish your race. Finish. And the great thing about it is, you're not racing me. And I'm not racing you. 
There is one person in your race, and it's you. You're not racing somebody else. Now, that's why we don't compare our lives to somebody else. Well, man, if I had their, uh, their job or their title or their life or their home or their spouse or their kids. No, no, no. You're in one race against you. You. Will you finish? Jesus finished his race. So when we think about running our race, we're not finished until we complete our race. That means when you die or the Lord returns. That's when your race is complete. But we don't see chairs. We see a finish line in view. We're to finish. But how often are we supposed to partake? When it comes down to partaking of the Lord's table, we're to run this race. But how often do we partake of his table? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. It says, for as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. It's a one-time thing, his coming. He's coming. We know that he is. That is the finish line. But the Lord's table is not a one-time event. Some churches do it more often, some less often. But it says as often we're to participate. His work is done. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work is completed. But ours won't be completed until we die or He returns. And while we're waiting, we're to partake in His table. You know, we need to think about how we're participating how we are. There is a challenge. Hey, we're challenged by all these others who have gone before us and who, are, uh, who have lived and who had great faith. But then we see that there's a consideration. We're to consider Christ in all that we do. But then number three, and lastly, we see that there's a chastening. And here's where we are today. Why we come today? What is our purpose for being here? What do we do as we're preparing there's a principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that is repeated here in chapter 12 of Hebrews. In verse number 4, it says, uh, we talk about, I'll get to the, the points in just a minute. But verse number 4, it says, Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. We have forgotten, forgotten. The encouragement, that exhortation, which was spoken to us. We might say today, we see the chastening of the Lord here in these verses. But why do we need correction? You know, if I'm considering Christ, Pastor, then why do I need correction? Why do I need this discipline? Because three simple things. Number one, we don't remember. We don't remember. It tells us in verse number five... Ye have forgotten. Ye have forgotten. Remember the contrast and comparison. Hey, there are people over here who live by faith, and we're to live by faith. We're to consider Christ, but we're also reminded that we are not the same as those who have gone before us. Those who have, just because those people did it, doesn't mean that I have an easy life. Just because Jesus suffered doesn't mean that I'm not going to suffer. And just because those around us live by faith doesn't mean that I'm off the hook. We don't remember that what they did is what we need to do. They walked by faith. And sometimes as we walk on our journey, we get dirty. We get dirty. 
I spent the last couple days in North Carolina with Michelle's family. And it is hot in North Carolina. And it is something that we don't have here as much. They have humidity that is disgusting. That is disgusting. I mean, you walk outside and all of a sudden you're sweating. It's like, what did I do? I haven't done anything. I just go outside to get the mail. You know, but all of a sudden I'm sweating. It's nasty. It's just the way that it is. And in our life from day to day, we are surrounded by sin. Not just within our flesh, but also around us. We are tempted to sin. And in the course of our life and our journey, as we run the race, we get dirty. And we don't remember who we're connected to. We go to work and we get around our friends at work and the people who uh, we spend time with and we forget that we belong to Him. And we act like we don't belong to Him. And we get dirty. We go home and our wife doesn't cook our favorite meal. It's not hot when we get there. The kids are screaming at each other and we don't remember who we belong to. We don't remember, oh man, I'm supposed to be like Jesus. I'm not supposed to say those things or do those things or lash out that way. I'm supposed to be like Jesus. We don't remember. We have forgotten the exhortation. We've forgotten that encouragement. And instead of living like him, we live like us. And there is something that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that is required for when we come before the Lord's table. It's called the examination. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 28 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. We are to examine our lives. What is my life supposed to look like? Romans chapter 8 says that my life is supposed to look like Jesus. And if I examine my life and I say, man, this area over here doesn't look like Jesus, oh well, no, no. If I notice a part of my life that's off, I'm to correct it. I'm to ask the Lord for help correcting it because if He is the example and ultimately I'm supposed to look like Him, then I should take His word for it and do what He says. Remember Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, do whatever you want to do. If you love me, keep my commandments. How foolish would it be for us to go about our life and say, I'm going to live for Christ, but I'm going to do it my way. It's not going to work. Uh, What would happen if you or some of your friends were out shooting a game of pickup basketball and Michael Jordan walks onto the court? And says, hey guys, can I play with you guys? How foolish would it be for you to say, nah, we're full, we're good. It's the greatest basketball player of all time. We're not going into LeBron, Michael, that's not even worth it. All right, there's only one goat, there's only one, and his name is MJ. Uh, But, so think about, think about our life. Today, somebody's going to come at the door and start the argument. I know, I feel it coming, and you will be wrong. Uh, so, but think about how foolish it would be. Imagine the greatest basketball player to ever live, and he wants to play, and he wants to give you advice on 
hey, man, if you'll, if you'll hold your elbow just like this, your, your shot, your follow-through would be so much. How foolish would it be for you to say, nah, I'm good, I'm good. It would be foolish. Imagine being out on the golf course and, and having a foursome together uh, ready to play and Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer walks up and says, hey, can I be a part of your group? Nah, we're good. We're, we're full. Maybe in the next group. How foolish. Uh, what if you're out there and you're getting ready to push off the boat from the dock and Bill Dance walks up. Says, hey, you got room in your boat for me? Nah, I'm good. How foolish. So how foolish would it be for Jesus to give us a guide and say, this is how you live your life. For us to say, we're good. I don't need it. I don't need to, to do that. You know, how much would it change our perspective on the basketball court with Michael Jordan playing on our team? Would you hustle a little bit more? Would you do your absolute best because of who's playing on the team now? Uh, would you do your absolute best if Jack Nicholas said, hey, if you'll hold your club this way, wouldn't you do your absolute best to do it exactly like he said? What if Bill Dance says, man, if you'll cast this way, man, you could throw a little bit farther, find this hole, man, you can draw in some real whoppers. Wouldn't we say, I'm going to do it exactly like he says? Then how much more if Jesus says, follow me? And remember, it's his team, not ours. It's his, not mine. How much more when he says, examine yourselves? Shouldn't we give our absolute best to make sure that is exactly the way he's designed? We don't remember. But then secondly, when he points things out, we don't remove. We don't remove. Verse number five. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. He doesn't chasten if we're in line. But he chastens when we refuse to remove those things that he points out. He says, hey, you, that's still there. I told you about that. That needs to be gone. And we hold on to it. I'm not letting go. This is mine. And he's the king. We don't remove. And twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and 29, we see the word unworthily. They participate unworthily. That literally means that we know that something needs to be corrected and we choose instead to do our way. Unworthily. See, in Hebrews, he talks about our role as sons and children. The problem comes in a family when we know that a change has to be made and we refuse. Remember, it was Einstein that said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting a different result. Insanity. How different is it in our lives today when we try to walk for Christ the same way we always do with no change and with no removal of our sin, no removal of our flesh, no change whatsoever, and we expect to live godly. It doesn't work that way. 
See, the problem is we don't remember that we belong to him. And then when he points out sin in our lives, we don't remove it. We don't change. Remember Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said unto the disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you ask Michael Jordan, man, how can I improve my jump shot? If you ask Jack Nicholas, how can I help my long game? How can I make sure that my putts, man, are dialed in every single time? Uh, Bill Dance, how can I bring in the biggest fish? Wouldn't you take their advice because they're good at it? If Jesus says, follow me, wouldn't we take his advice because he knows? Wouldn't we do what he says? Are we willing to change anything for him? And then lastly, not only do we not remember, we don't remove. Number three, we don't realize. We don't realize. Look at verse six. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. You know, the one who died for us is the same one who's judging us. And he judges us not out of hate, but out of love. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. See, there is a silver lining in this. We can judge ourselves. We don't have to have the Lord judge us. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, but if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Hey, we can look at our own life and examine our own heart and see where we are and say, you know what, I know that that needs to be removed. I know that that's not pleasing to the Lord. And we can remove it before he has to judge it. Before chastening comes, we can correct it. Maybe we need to pray like David prayed in Psalm 139 verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. Examine me. See, he wanted to change. David said, I know that there's some things in my life. I know that there's change that needs to take place. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to change. Maybe that's what we need to do today. Before we come before the Lord's table, before we enter into his presence, before we come before this very special event, maybe we need to say, Lord, search me. If there's anything that's displeasing to you, if there's anything that's not right, if there's anything that doesn't bring you honor, Lord, remove it. Because we know that we belong to him. We remember Hey, we say, Lord, if you show me, I will remove it because I realize if I don't remove it that you will judge it. You will judge me for it. Do we want to change? Do we want to correct our behavior? But what are we willing to do? How far are we willing to go to do what he desires? Are we willing to put off those things that we have grown accustomed to doing? If he said, don't do this, would you change because he asked? If he says, I want you to do this, would you do it because he asked? Remember, this is his life, not ours. I'm supposed to bring him glory, not me. So when we come before the Lord's table. It is His table. And it should be participated in His way, 
and not our own way. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed. Let me ask you two questions this morning. First one is simple. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know that there's been a time in your life where you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus? Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that heaven's your home one day? Do you know that? And maybe you're here this morning and you have a doubt or you're not sure, you're not convinced. Could I pray for you this morning? I don't want to embarrass you or call you out. I simply want to know who I'm praying for today. Maybe you're in here like I was when I was a teenager, 17 years old. I'd grown up in church and I knew all the things. I knew all the things to say. I knew the verses, but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. There had never been a time in my life when I'd placed my faith. I had exercised faith in Christ. And maybe that is your testimony today. Uh, Could I challenge you this morning if that is your story? Would you simply talk to him about your need today? I would like to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you, call your name out, point you out. I wouldn't do that. But I would like to know who I'm praying for. Maybe you say, Pastor, that is me. I don't know if I died, I'd be on my way to heaven. I'm just not convinced. I don't have that confidence. Can I pray for you? While no one's looking around, I don't want to embarrass you, but I would like to pray for you. Would you simply slip up your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. Hey, you're talking about me. I don't know if I died, I'd be on my way to heaven. I'm not sure. Is that you? I don't want to miss you, but I do want to pray for you this morning. Would you simply slip up your hand long enough for me to see it and put it right back down? Pastor, pray for me. I don't know. Please pray for me. Thank you for your honesty. You can put your hand down. Maybe somebody else. I haven't raised my hand yet, but I'll raise it now. Pastor, please pray for me. Please pray for me. Maybe you're here and you're in the category like the majority of us would be. We know that we have a relationship with Jesus. But maybe you say, you know, Pastor, there's just something there that's unchecked. There's something in my life that I know does not bring Him glory. I know that it's maybe sin. I know that it's holding me back from what He desires of my life. Hey, would you talk to Him about that today? That is the need for you. Maybe for some, it's entering into a relationship with Jesus. When we come before His table, those who come before His table are supposed to be His family. So if you're here this morning and you don't know that Jesus is your Savior, that is what you need. You need Him. And the way that we acknowledge that is simply understanding that we are sinners. We're not perfect in in the sight of God, and Jesus died on the cross for that sin and makes us a promise if we'll simply ask Him to forgive us of our sin and trust Him that He will be our Savior. He makes us His promise from His Word. But in a crowd this size, most of us have probably already checked that box. And we would say, you know, Pastor, maybe there's something that's not right, and I know it. Or maybe you don't know it, and you need to ask the Lord to reveal it to you. But would you simply take a moment, we're going to sing in just a minute, but would you simply talk to the Lord this morning? Before we partake in the Lord's table, before we participate in communion, would you simply ask the Lord to show you if there's anything in your life that needs to be removed? Would you ask Him to cleanse you, ask Him to search your heart, and if there's anything that needs to be taken care of, that needs to be confessed and forgiven, simply ask Him to do it. Simply ask Him to show it. And when he does, ask him to forgive you. That's what today is all about. Starting clean, clean to come before his table. Father, please bless our time of invitation. 
Lord, those that raise their hand for salvation, they're unsure about where they'll spend eternity. Lord, help them this morning to call on you, to talk to a personal worker. We have personal workers all around the room, some down front, some behind. Lord, that would love to take the Bible and show them how they can know for sure that they're on their way to heaven. Lord, for those who are saved, who know that they have a relationship with you, but that relationship is not what it should be, help them this morning to get that settled before we partake together. Help us to be clean, both inside and without. Lord, help us to have a spotless relationship with you. Please use this time for us to examine ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us, please. Pastor Tim's going to lead us in that song, Jesus Paid It All. We're going to sing together. The altar's open if you need to pray in your seat or come pray with someone. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about your relationship with the Lord or starting a relationship with the Lord. Our personal workers are down front. would love to talk to you. Before we partake in communion, let's get our hearts ready to participate this morning.